John chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 14, and then skip down to verse 18. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. When I was in seminary, we had, uh, my wife and I had a neighbor who lived in the apartment above us who was an elderly uh, single woman. And I would sometimes drive her to the grocery store on the east side of Pittsburgh so that she could get groceries. And while she was in the store, I always had to kill some time while I was waiting for her to finish her shopping. And one of the things I did most often was I would walk across the street, across the street from that particular grocery store, there was a beautiful, large, stone, Gothic cathedral. And it was always open during the day, and so I would walk across the road, and I would enter into the sanctuary, and I'd sit down in a pew, and I would just take in the environment. It was so different than the very simple, plain country church that I grew up in, with the high vaulted stone ceilings, the gorgeous multicolored stained glass windows, the massive and ornate altar and pulpit. Back in the Middle Ages when they began to design churches like this, every part of that church building had symbolic importance to it. It all, every part of the building would teach a lesson. And so the high ceilings would point us towards the transcendence of the God that we worship. The colorful light coming through the windows would speak of the mystery and the beauty of God. And the massive stone of the building would speak to us of God's unchangeable nature and his unchanging faithfulness. And as I sat there in that gorgeous, reverent environment in that sanctuary, I would often become overwhelmed with emotion. And I had a, re a very real and palpable sense of the presence of God. 
And I remember thinking many times, if only my church looked like this, if only I could worship at a place like this every Sunday, I would feel the presence of God every Sunday, just like I feel it right now. Well, the reality is it would have been like that for a few weeks, maybe even a few months. But just because of our human nature and the failings of our faith, eventually things that are very special and reverent and speak to us of the presence of God become ordinary after a while and they come, become commonplace. And I'm sure after worshiping there for months and years, I would have all the same difficulties of sensing the presence of God as I have them in any other setting. I knew that, I had that experience. I used to, we lived, uh, when we lived in uh, Westchester, we lived only a few miles from Longwood Gardens. And I know many of you have been there. It's one of the most uh, beautiful and uh, spectacular gardens in the entire world. And I, since we lived so close, I had a, we had a membership there and I could go every Wednesday morning to pray, to pray for the church, to pray for its ministries. And it was like walking through the Garden of Eden, literally. I, I still to this day believe, I don't think you're gonna find a place on earth that feels more like what the Garden of Eden must have felt like than being there at Longwood Gardens. And it was so easy to pray, so easy to worship and pray as I walked to that place. But what, it became kind of sad over time though because after many months of going there every Wednesday morning, it started to lose its impact on me. And the things that were so beautiful and spectacular, they were just common and ordinary and I wasn't even noticing them anymore. And I went back to having all the same struggles to feel the presence of God and to worship like I always have anywhere else. It's man's nature to try to find God in places or to connect with God and feel like you're in the presence of God because of things. Whether it's walking through a forest, going to a temple, bowing before a statue or a shrine, or walking up to the top of a, hiking up to the top of a mountain to talk to a guru. Some, we always feel like we have to go somewhere to find God. We've got to seek him out. We've got to go look for him in unusual places. The Gospel of John was written to us to tell us that you don't find God that way. The Gospel of John was written to tell us that God comes to us. That actually we in our sinful nature never seek after God, but God must come to us where we are. That's where we meet with God. If we were to skip over to John chapter 2, we read most of John chapter 1, but in chapter 2, following up on chapter 1, it tells a very interesting story of the first time that Jesus, not the first time, but one of the first times during his public ministry that Jesus went to the temple. And it says he entered into the temple and there he saw the money changers corrupting the worship of God's people. And so he forcibly drove the money changers out of the courts of the temple and the leaders of the Jews came to Jesus and they challenged him to do some kind of miraculous sign to prove that he had the authority to do such an audacious thing. And Jesus refused to do any miracle to please them. Instead, he gave them a riddle, a very provocative statement. This is what he said. Destroy this temple and in three days... 
I will raise it up. And of course, the Jewish leaders took him literally and said, what kind of a madman is this? It, at that point, it had taken 40 years to construct the temple, 46 years actually, to construct the temple to the state that it was in Jesus' day. It would take another 30 years before it was done. It was this massive stone edifices, edifice, far, far bigger and greater and grander than any cathedral you've ever seen. But they didn't understand. They did not have the spiritual insight to realize what Jesus was saying. John Piper interprets Jesus here. He paraphrases him and says, this is what Jesus was really saying if they had had ears to hear. Kill me and I will become the global meeting place for God. Kill me and I will become the global meeting place with God. The book of John presents Jesus as the answer to the greatest need in our lives. We may not recognize it, we may not admit it, we may not want to admit it, but our greatest need is to be in the God's presence, to see the glory of God, and to bask in his presence. John begins his gospel, going back to the beginning of chapter one, he begins with a glimpse of the glory of God before creation, before anything existed, God existed. And in his glory, John gives us a, a glimpse of God's existence before he created anything. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is no more profound statement about the identity of Jesus Christ than what John says in verse 1 of chapter 1. He begins by saying, in the beginning, in other words, at the point when all of creation was brought into existence, at that moment was the word. The word is in Greek logos, the, the word in Greek. We'll talk for a minute why, why John called Jesus the word, but he says that he existed when everything else was created. In other words, he existed eternally. He goes on to say, the word was with God. Jesus was with God in the beginning before anything else was created. And actually a better translation for that word in the original Greek to be more exact, it says the word was toward God. Jesus was toward God. And that brings in the idea that God the Father and God the Son were not only with each other, but they were face to face. They were towards one another. They are in intimate relationship with one another as father and son. And then he says the word was God. Jesus was God. There is only one God. And yet Jesus was in the beginning and he was with God and he is God. And there you have the most profound mystery of all of what the scriptures tell us about the, the identity of God, the being of God is that he is three persons, yet one God. I mentioned a moment ago that there's a reason why John calls Jesus the Word. And lots of interesting um, aspects of this that you can bring out when you think of John's audience uh, of, among the Gentiles. The Gentiles, as they read this, they had their own associations with that word logos, the Word. But 
If you think about the Jews and what they heard, when they heard, John was writing to them too, if not primarily to them in some ways. And when he calls Jesus the word, it had a very specific meaning for the Jewish nation. To the Jews, the word of God was the very expression of who God is. We have a hard time understanding somebody's word being an exact expression of who they are because we don't use words that way. We use words to try to manipulate people. We, try to, we use words to try to manipulate people's perception of us. We use words to try to convince them that we are somebody that we're not. And we use words to hide who we truly are. I remember an old uh, Star Trek The Next Generation show where uh, Captain Picard and Dr. Crusher were uh, stranded and they were captured by aliens. And after they were captured, they had a, a, an unusual device injected into their neck. And from that point on, once that device was in their neck, they could hear each other's thoughts, whether they wanted to be heard or not. And I remember watching that show and thinking, is that not our worst nightmare? I mean, talk, I, I don't, you know, you can have horror movies, you can have all kinds of scary things. That's the scariest thing in the world to me. If somehow everybody could hear every thought that was going through my head. We use words to cover up who we really are, but not God. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. And so God's word is an exact representation of his thoughts, of his attitudes, of his being. God's word is an exact representation of who he is. And that's really what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say at the beginning of his epistle. Listen to how he begins. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, the exact representation of the Father. As Jesus would later say, he who has seen me, has seen the Father. This God has pursued his people from the beginning. And really, that's the story of human history, of God presenting himself to people, to humans, coming to them and them and offering himself to them, offering his presence to them, and them rejecting him. That's the story of human history. Verse 3, look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's talking about God the Son. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus uncreated, he existed eternally, he was not created. Not only is he uncreated, but he is the creator. Genesis 1 says God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there was land. God spoke and there was sea. God spoke and there were the creatures on the land. God spoke and man was created. 
God spoke. That word of God was Jesus Christ, John tells us. He was the one who actually did the hands-on work of bringing creation into, into existence. And then God meets with man. God enters into the creation. It tells us in Genesis that God walked with man in the garden. We talk in the Old Testament, in many places in the Old Testament, we meet, with, meet up with the angel of the Lord. And we see that that was a visible representation of God's presence, the angel of the Lord. We often talk about that as being a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ. Not Christ appearing in the flesh, literally, but in the appearance of humanity. That he met with man by appearing to be human. And that was the angel of the Lord. Very, several instances of that in the Old Testament. I believe that's probably what happened in the Garden of Eden. That Jesus Christ appeared anywhere because it said God walked with man in the garden. Christ was with man. And in verse 3 it says, In him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. Mankind walked in the light of God's presence. He saw God face to face. And he saw himself and the whole world around him in light of God's glory. Until Satan tempted man. And he led Adam and Eve astray. And they rejected God's presence and chose the darkness. And in scripture, if light is the presence of God, and that is the light and the life of men, darkness is separation from God. And the scripture tells us that darkness covered the entire planet under God's curse. And verse 5 is really a summary of the whole Old Testament. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Mankind, through his rebellion and rejection, brought the darkness upon the earth, but the light kept, keeps on penetrating it, and the darkness has not overcome the light. That's the story of the Old Testament. The recurring cycle of biblical history, and all history since then, is that God offers his presence, man rejects it, except for a faithful remnant. There's always a faithful remnant that receives the offer of God's presence. And God continually pursues his people. Grace is the result of the relentless pursuit of God. Adam didn't seek God, God sought Adam. Noah didn't seek God, God sought Noah. Abraham didn't seek God, God sought Abraham. Moses didn't seek God, David didn't seek God, God sought man. And he continually seeks us. But then that brings us, in, in John's telling of human history here, it brings us to the greatest intervention to this point of God into this dark creation of his when God's presence was offered, presence was offered and rejected at the incarnation of Christ. In verse 9, John refers to this great announcement. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What coming into the world is John talking about? Well, verses 6 to 8 tell us that it came this light, the light, the same light that was in the Garden of Eden came into the world when John the Baptist was preaching his good news. 
during the life and ministry of John the Baptist. He was one sent to bear witness to the coming of the light into the world. But, John says, again, the world did not know him and the world did not receive him. Again, they chose the darkness over the light. But some did, again, a faithful remnant. Some did receive the light. They received him, they responded in faith. John refers to them in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, even those who received him, it was a result of God's relentless pursuit. The people who received him were not people who had extraordinary spiritual insight or extraordinary righteousness so that they sought after this God and they received him when he showed up. No, it's because God changed their heart. God opened their ears and opened their eyes so that they would see who Christ is, that they would understand why he came and they would receive him as Lord and Savior. And how did he come? Another of the great mysteries of God, that when he chose to come into the world to meet with us, he did it in the way that verse 14 describes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God added a, a human nature to his divine nature. He became flesh. And John says, and he dwelt among us. And the word that we use there, we mentioned this last week, the word he uses for dwelt among us is pitch a tent. He pitched a tent in our midst. And when you hear tent and you think of the covenant of grace, the plan of God from the beginning, you know of the other great tent that God inhabited and that was the tent of the tabernacle. And we looked at that last week. In Exodus chapter 25, verse eight, it says, after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he took them to the wilderness, he gave them his law, and he said to them, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And he asked for a tent, because they lived in tents, because they were mobile, he also lived in a tent in the center of their encampment and he met with and dwelt with his people. Later, King David, when he established Jerusalem as a permanent capital city of the nation of God's people, he longed to build a permanent building, not just a tent, but since they were in one place, to build a glorious temple. And God called upon his son Solomon to do it. And he built this great temple, but remember what God said to his people, to Solomon and to his people when the temple was built. This is from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. What a promise. My eyes and my heart will be there when you come to meet with me there. I will be there with you always. It's that background to what John is saying here 
in, in chapter 1. He's saying that the Son of God, this eternal Son of God, has become flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Paul said it with theological precision in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to meet with God? God has given you his meeting place. It's in Jesus Christ. He is where we meet with God. And how did that happen? Let me take you back to that provocative riddle that Jesus gave to the, the Jewish leadership in the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He intentionally used three words that could be used in a, both a literal way or in a double meaning or in a literal way and a metaphorical way. The first word he uses is the word destroy. Destroy this temple. The word destroy can, means to tear down or to break down. And it can mean to demolish a building or it can mean to kill a human being. The second word he uses is temple. And it can refer literally to a building, a house of worship, or it can refer to the body where the, where the spirit dwells. And thirdly, the word, third word he uses is raise up, which, which is, can be used and was used to, erect, to talk about erecting a building like an Amish barn raising or to the resuscitation of a person, a resurrection. And so what Jesus truly meant the spiritual meaning behind his words was, again, kill me and I will rise again and become the global meeting place with God. That's why later Jesus made another provocative statement. He says in Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. I am to become the ultimate meeting place with God. Jesus did not come to end the law, but to fulfill the law. But he did come to end the temple and the blood sacrifices and the priesthood and the cleansing rituals because he came to fulfill what all those shadows pointed to, which was he would be the true tabernacle where sinners meet with their holy God. Remember what the Lord said to Solomon about the temple. He said, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Do you know what the New Testament parallel to that is? When Jesus said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Pray in my name. Meet God at the true tabernacle. And his eyes will be open and his ears will be open to your prayer. He will hear you and he will be favorable towards you and he will receive you and he will bless you if you meet him at the true tabernacle, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the whole meaning behind this interaction that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. Remember, he confronted her about her serial adultery, her extensive sexual sin. And instead of dealing with her guilt 
and confessing her sin. Instead, she tries to change the subject and bring up a, a debatable, uh, hot topic, hot theological topic of the day, which was, should God be worshipped in Jerusalem or should he be worshipped where the Samaritans worship? And so you have her question in verse 19 of chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't change, he didn't change the subject back. He didn't rebuke her for trying to change the subject. He says, you know what? Ironically, you've actually brought up the key issue here. Where do you meet with God? Even a sinner like you. Where do you meet with God? And here's his answer. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called to Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. How do you meet with God? Worship Christ. He is where you meet with God. And it is no longer tied to a place. Because he has sent his spirit. He is everywhere. He is here in our midst this morning. Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is here by his spirit. You meet with him here. We call Advent a season of longing. We said it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a time that is both filled with joy, but also the grief that we're not where we want to be yet. In spite of where God has brought us by his grace, there is still far to go before we are where we really want to be and where we need to be as born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for the fullness of our salvation. And our salvation isn't about escaping hell or having the blessings of heaven for eternity or seeing our loved ones after we die. That's not what our salvation is about. It's about being in the presence of God, seeing his glory and worshiping him because that's what we're created for and that is our greatest joy. Someone once said, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? And there's truth in that. There's a reason why that's been repeated many times. There's some truth in that, but there's also something that's very wrong in it. It is true that we do drift away from God. We sometimes run away from God. But what's wrong with that popular saying is that God is never stationary in the relationship. God is always pursuing. When you're drifting, he's pursuing. When you're running, he's pursuing. And he has promised that he will never stop pursuing until he brings you to the fullness of your salvation in, your, in his presence to see his glory forever. And he is good to his promise. Psalm 139, we read it earlier. Ling read it, read it and we read responsively, or we responded to it in our prayer. In Psalm 139, I want to read it to you again in light of what we've been saying about where you meet with God. Listen to what David said, even hundreds of years before the incarnation. He said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. At that point, if you don't understand what Jesus did at the cross, if you don't believe that his blood was shed for you, that you've been cleansed of your sin and your guilt and shame has been taken away, at that point you read those first five verses and you say, woe is me, I am undone. What a wretch I am. Have mercy. But that's not David's reaction because he knows the blood has covered his sin. He believes in the promise that God has given. And so he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high, I can't attain it. God knows me that well. He knows what I'm going to say even before I think it. He knows every thought. He knows every attitude. He knows every plan of my heart. And but because Christ has come and has shed his blood for my sin, he accepts me even though he knows every thought. When I read my Bible in the morning and I pray, I usually don't pray out loud. I pray in my mind. And I know God hears me. And sometimes that thought blows me away. God hears my thoughts. He knows what I'm thinking. Unbelievers think that my thoughts are just electrical impulses randomly firing in my head. But God hears my thoughts. He hears my heart. He knows everything that's going on inside of me. He knows the words I say before I pray them. And I think about that and I think, what a huge, powerful, awesome God that we serve that he not only hears my thoughts when I pray, but he hears yours and everybody's. Even if we're praying at the same time, he hears them all. That's how big our God is. And then in my prayer, I start to confess my sin in the realization of how well he knows me. And I end with the thought, of what Christ did for me to make it possible for God to hear my prayers and to accept them and to favor me and to answer me with the best possible answers to all my prayers. He loves me that much. He accepts me to that degree because of what Christ did for me. Christ is the true tabernacle. He is where we meet with God. He is here right now. And if you don't know him, believe and he will show himself to you. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate the first coming, the incarnation. And we acknowledge that's because of what Christ did for us in that first coming is the reason why we even know you, that we are able to come to you and pray to you and know that you hear us and that you will respond with grace. But Lord, we look with longing in this Advent season for the second coming. When Christ will come back as he has promised and our sin will be completely removed and all of, our, all of uh, the, the slavery and oppression that sin has brought into our lives will be taken away and we will be made perfect and we will be conformed perfectly to his image and we will be able to see you in our resurrection body, body and soul, to stand before you and to see your glory and to rejoice together in you for all eternity. Lord, increase that longing that it might motivate us to seek to not only become more like Christ, but to share his good news with those who need to hear it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.